You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Chris Dooley. This week, Brexit is back on the news. On Monday, the minister responsible for overseeing Britain's negotiations on its withdrawal from the EU, David Davis, set out his plans in the House of Commons. But what did we learn from his speech and the debate that followed? Dennis Staunton, our London editor, will be here to tell us. And the migrant and refugee crisis has been the big story in France this week. Lara Marlowe will join us later. Dennis Staunton, we're all familiar now with the emphatic statement made by Theresa May when she became British Prime Minister in July, Brexit means Brexit. Two months down the road, are we any clearer as to what Brexit actually means? Not much clearer. What uh, Theresa May in the last couple of days has been saying, and this has been amplified by David Davis, who's the Secretary of State for Brexit, uh, he's in charge of of planning for the negotiations, is that uh, one thing it means is that Britain is definitely leaving the European Union. So there has been, you know, there was in the weeks following the referendum a bit of a fantasy on the Remain side that maybe somehow the thing would never happen, that you might have a second referendum or that uh, they might put it to a parliamentary vote before they have it. Theresa May has made clear there will be no parliamentary vote before the start of formal negotiations. This is triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty that starts two years of talks and that there will be no second referendum, that Britain will be leaving the European Union and that's definitely going to happen. Beyond that, though, uh, the specifics start to become uh, scarcer. The the big question t- tends to surround the relationship or the balance between uh, the desire of uh, the people who voted to leave to control immigration from the European Union on the one hand and the desire of British business to uh, retain maximum access to the European single market. If you want to be in the single market and you're outside the European Union, like in Norway, for example, you've got to uh, accept free movement of people from the uh, the EU. Now, that's clearly something which um, Theresa May and others have said is not is not acceptable, that the vote was clearly a vote to change something about immigration. Where she started to fudge a little bit is that she started to say over the last few days, the uh, people of Britain voted to have some control over the free movement of people, uh, which has uh, caused some of the hardcore Brexiteers, people like Nigel Farage, uh, to say that she may be backsliding on the promise of the referendum. And at the same time, uh, David Davis was in the uh, parliament yesterday in the House of Commons, and he gave a lengthy statement in which he said very little, except that uh, before they start formal negotiations, that uh, Britain's government is going to consult everybody. It's going to consult business, trade unions, environmental law, lobby groups, the uh, devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, Nobody will have a veto on it, but they will consult everybody. And in the meantime, his department is going to conduct a kind of an audit of what British business will need from the negotiations. So uh, it's still what they seem to be saying is we still haven't quite worked out what our negotiating position is going to be. But the central difficulty will, will, I think, surround those two issues of immigration and access to the single market. Right. And there have been, I suppose, a few developments in the last few days, and you made reference to some of them there. Maybe just to try to unpick them a little bit and interpret them. First of all, there was Prime Minister Theresa May's comment at the G20 summit in China, um, in which which you appeared to reject or more or less rule out an Australian-style point system for immigration to Britain. What do people mean, actually, when they talk about a point system like that? And and why why did that comment go down so badly with some people on the, on, on the Leave side, the people who campaigned for a Brexit? During the, the referendum campaign, the Leave side... 
uh, held this up as being the great alternative to free movement. A points-based immigration system, just like Australia has, where basically you are allowed in depending on the kind of skills that you have. And so the idea being that uh, you know, the country will only accept those uh, those kind of those workers uh, who will answer some kind of need in the economy. And the idea of the Leave people was that uh, it wouldn't matter whether you came from Europe or from Asia or from Africa or anywhere, that uh, really what would matter would be the skills. Now, what a lot of the Remain people uh, pointed out at the time was that the reason why countries like Australia uh, and Canada have uh, a points-based system is that they actually want to have more immigrants rather than fewer. And so that it doesn't necessarily work as a system to uh, to reduce immigration. So Theresa May uh, made clear during her visit to China that she's not keen at all on this point-based system. She doesn't think it'll work. She doesn't think that uh, it's the way to go where EU immigration is concerned. Uh, and so that has been regarded as something of a betrayal by some of the people who voted uh, or and campaigned for leave. Uh, what they're worried about is that um, she's she's making clear that although Britain will leave the European Union, it may not do so on the terms that were uh, that were ventilated by the Leave campaigners during the campaign, and that's fair enough, I think, probably because uh, a lot of the Leave campaigners couldn't agree on exactly what uh, Britain's relationship with the EU would look like after it left. So she's saying there's not going to be a points-based system. There's been some talk. Uh, in the background about perhaps introducing some system of work permits. So in other words, if you have a job, uh, you can come uh, if you're uh, if you're a citizen of the European Union. But if you don't have a job that you would maybe register with the Home Office and uh, they'd keep an eye on you. And if you hadn't found a job within three months, they'd send you home. So uh, so there, there's, there's some talk of, of doing something like that. But all of this would have to be negotiated with uh, with the other European countries. Of course, one of the supporters of that point <coughs> system pro- prominently during the Brexit campaign was Boris Johnson, who's now Foreign Secretary. So th- does that tell us something about the sort of limited role that Boris Johnson might be playing in these negotiations with the EU? Well, I, I think I'm not sure that does. I mean, I think he is a little bit sidelined just because uh, a lot of the role has been taken by David Davis. But what you have seen is that a lot of the uh, the, the Eurosceptics and the Leave campaigners within the Conservative Party have uh, been inclined to back Theresa May on this, and or at least to cut her some slack and say, well, we're not necessarily wedded to one particular system. You know, it's all about you know getting you know you know, regaining control of immigration somehow. It's all about regaining sovereignty. Exactly how you do that is something that we have to work out, and we trust Theresa May to uh, to do the right thing. And anyway, she hasn't made up her mind. So, so I think they're pretty relaxed about it. The people who uh, who would tend to be making hay out of it are more likely to be some of her very very hardcore ultras on the back benches, but more specifically people in UKIP like Nigel. Farage. Now, an- another significant development this week was a very stark warning from uh, Japan that UK-based Japanese businesses could withdraw w- withdraw from from Britain if their access to EU markets isn't fully protected post Brexit. Has that intervention had any impact in in the political discourse there? Yes, it's given people a fright because this was a 16-page letter that the Japanese government wrote outlining really what uh, it said that Japan, Japanese companies operating in Britain would want from uh, the Brexit negotiations. And the long and the short of it is that they want nothing to change, at least nothing that would in any way disadvantage the way Japanese companies operate. And they went through a lot of specifics. Like, for example, they were saying if 
you know, uh, a lot of these Japanese car companies that operate in uh, in Britain, they're part of big supply chains that go all the way across Europe. And they said if there's any change in the system of tariffs, if, for example, Britain leaves the EU customs union, that that could some, somehow make uh, or suddenly make these Japanese cars much more expensive in the rest of Europe, and it could just interrupt the whole way in which they produce uh, these, these uh, their, their cars. And in the same way, there are a number of Japanese banks operating in the city of London, and they wanted to make sure that nothing would change uh, in in terms of the uh, the access and the, uh, to the European markets that uh, that British-based institutions would have, and also the various functions they could perform. So this was a very very detailed uh, description of issues that would not just affect, I think, Japanese companies, but also an awful lot of British indigenous companies in terms of how they operate uh, after Brexit. And so I think it did give people a shock because it made it quite clear, especially since the Japanese, in a very polite way, said, we love being here and we really want to stay in Britain because it's the best place on earth to do business. But of course, if you change any of this, then we'll leave. And so that really did people give them a bit of a fright. Okay, and then the other, I suppose, development you did refer to was David Davis's speech in the House of Commons yesterday, followed by a debate. But did we learn anything at all specific or anything significant about the British government's approach? Um, you've already outlined kind of the, the general outline of what he said. Um, but can we make any deductions arising from it about whether they're looking at a soft Brexit, so-called, or a hard Brexit? Or, you know, do we know any more now than we did before he spoke? Uh, no, I, I think that uh, you know a lot of the complaints were that he did. You know, he spoke for two hours and managed not to say anything at all. But I think what we did learn was, first of all, they don't know exactly what uh, what they're up to. They're you know, that they're not going to rush into any of the, to start in these negotiations. They're in no hurry to um, to trigger Article Fifty of the Lisbon Treaty, and so that they would. Um, and really, what they're trying to do is to develop some kind of a consensus. But as to exactly what. Uh, that involves. I think the one thing we do know is that uh, you know they, what they've said a number of times. He said it, and uh, Theresa May has also said it. Is that none of the existing models, like the Norway option or the Switzerland option or the Canada option or any of these options that we we've, we've heard discussed, they say none of these are suitable. That they feel they need um, a, a new bespoke option just for Britain. That Britain is big enough and it's uh, you know it's got a unique uh, history with the European Union having been a member state for uh, over 40 years. And so as such that, uh, you, know, we, you know, that they would have to come up with a new um, a new arrangement. It's also clear is that something has to happen uh, in terms of controlling immigration from the European Union. But it's also quite clear that uh, Theresa May is open to some kind of negotiation on that. And so that could be a rather softer kind of restriction on immigration. And then the other thing uh, that we've learned is that uh, th that Britain wants to retain access to the European single market, but is not necessarily wedded to remaining inside the European single market. And many in her, in Theresa May's government, now accept that uh, if they are going to have these controls on free movement of people, then they're going to have to leave the uh, European single market and try to work out how they reduce the cost to British business from actually be taking that step. And, and finally, Dennis, the, the timetable for negotiations, um, is it now pretty clear that formal negotiations will begin early next year? Is that what we're looking at? And then maybe two years down the road from that before Brexit happens? Yeah, the, what we know is that they won't begin before uh, the early next year. What we don't know is how early next year will they start. The, the feeling here has been that if uh, Theresa May allows things to drag on too long without starting, that some of the uh, the, the people who voted to leave might feel as if they were being cheated. But I'm not so sure about that. I think also the other thing is that the uh, European, the other European countries are 
kind of um, you know eager that Britain should now get on with it. Now you've decided to go, so here's your coat. Is kind of the approach from Brussels, but the uh, but you know uh, so I, so I, it's not clear exactly how early next year it would begin, but probably in the first quarter of 2017 they would start the negotiations. There's a limit of two years on the negotiations, which can be extended. Uh, at the discretion of the other member states, uh, if necessary. But what you'd probably find would be that you have two years of negotiations about uh, the business of actually getting out of the European Union, but those would be followed then by further negotiations about some of the future relationship uh, between Britain and the European Union. So it could be, and then you could also have transitional arrangements so that even though you might agree the deal in two years' time, uh, that actually this could be phased in so that uh, maybe you wouldn't really notice that you were out for quite a few years after that. So I think we're in for quite a long haul on this one. (laughs) Okay. Dennis Daunton in London, thank you. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Well, a perception by many voters that Britain needs to take back control of its borders was a feature of the Brexit referendum campaign. Immigration, and in particular the ongoing international migrant and refugee crisis, is also a hot political issue in other EU member states. This is certainly the case in France, where today the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, announced plans to open two camps in the city. These camps would cater for the growing number of men, women and children fleeing war and poverty who are sleeping on the streets of the French capital. Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent, is just back from Ms Hidalgo's press conference and can tell us more. Lara, what exactly did the mayor announce today and what has prompted this move? She announced the first ever uh, refugee camps in a capital city, she says. Uh, the male camp will be near the Gare du Nord um, on, in an old warehouse that's owned by the SNCF railway station. It will house 400 men initially and later uh, be expanded to 600. Uh, the idea is that they are, these are transit camps. Uh, the inhabitants are only meant to stay for five to ten days. The other camp is just south of Paris in the suburb of Ivry, uh, and it will hold 350 women and children. Um, the, the, the whole system really depends on whether or not the government does its part. Um, Ms. Hidalgo, the mayor, has had a certain amount of tension with the interior minister. Although they're both socialist, uh, the government has been very, uh, you could say, quite closed in its uh, refugee policy. It has not wanted France to become a magnet for for refugees the way um, Germany is, for example. Whereas Anne Hidalgo is a a very sort of motherly character, very warm, and she she says this is a a humanitarian issue, and it's an issue of values and morality. Uh, So she, the reason she's dependent on the government is that there has to be movement in these camps. They want to take, there are 80 new migrants arriving in Paris every day now. You see them sleeping on the streets, even, even in the nice neighborhoods, although most of them tend to be up in northeastern Paris in the poorer areas. Um, and unless the government, the central government, sorts these people and decides which ones will be sent to the, what they call CAOs, as are centers of welcome and orientation for asylum seekers, unless there's a, a constant movement of people, it won't work, because these, these uh, two camps will hold a total of only 750 people to begin with, and um, they'll very quickly fill up. And given those figures you just, you just gave us, Lara, 80 uh, migrants and refugees arriving every day, and two camps that would hold... 
750 people. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is this a serious practical measure or is it a gesture by the mayor to, to raise awareness of the issue? What, what's behind well, it? Well, I, I think it's both. I mean, if, if assuming that the arrivals stay at that level, if the migrants are allowed to stay only a maximum of 10 days, um, that would that would mean every ten days you would have the the, the camps completely refilled. Uh, the at the city level they're not distinguishing between economic migrants and refugees. Uh, the government at the level of its uh, centres out in the provinces uh, does make that distinction. And if you're not an asylum seeker, i.e., if you're not from Syria or Eritrea, or one of the few countries whose uh, migrants are deemed to be worthy of asylum, you're, you're basically thrown out and you have to fend for yourself. And that means that most of the Africans who are considered economic migrants, for example, will not eventually they might have a place initially in one of these new Paris camps, but they're not going to get a long-term place uh, in, in, a, in a center out in the provinces. Uh, so I think it's on, on the part of the mayor, she wants to address the problem of people sleeping rough in, in the city. It's been very bad for the city's image. There have been uh, nearly 30 of these uh, makeshift camps demolished over the past year or so, and every time it looks bad because there's police and tear gas and, and people crying and, and this sort of thing, and she doesn't want that to keep happening. She wants everyone to be taken care of. And indeed, it, you know, it sounds on, on paper like these places will be quite nice. Uh, the men's camp, for example, there'll only be four men to a room. They'll be arranged inside this huge um, railway warehouse in little neighborhoods, and each neighborhood will be a different color, you know, bright color of pink and blue and green and so on and so forth. And they'll have little cafes and they'll have uh, Wi-Fi connections and so on and so forth. But it's, it's going to be very short term. Uh, and so they, but they, they say they want a place where they can rest, um, where they can get medical care and where they can also get advice on their future. There will be representatives of the immigration office telling people what, what their options are. And did I understand you, Laura, to say that you would you would stay in one of these camps, or a resident would would remain just for ten days before they're 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 moved on? Is that's that right? right. And, and that, where would they go right. then after ten days? Well, either if they if the government um, thinks that they have a chance as an asylum seeker, if they're allowed to apply for asylum, which means you you have to prove that your life is in danger in your country of origin to be considered a legitimate asylum seeker. Basically, everyone who comes from Syria is considered an asylum seeker. Now you have phenomena like other Arabs, Libyans, and Palestinians uh, pretending to be Syrians because they think they have a much better chance of getting asylum that way. So the government has this in- enormous job of triage to do to decide who can who can apply for asylum and who can't. The ones who are who's asylum applications are considered will be taken to what they call CAOs, uh, Centre d'Accueil et d'Orientation. It's a welcome and orientation center out in the provinces. At the moment, in all of France, there are only 3,000 places in CAOs. That's going to be to rise to 5,000 by the end of September. Now, eventually, if you, after you've spent your time in the um, CAO, there's another uh, system, I'm sorry to be so technical about it, called, they call them CADAs, which are, are, are lodging centers for asylum seekers. 
and those are more long-term. And if you, if you have a legitimate claim to asylum, you can go to one of these places and wait out your, your application, which takes a year and a half or two years in most cases. You're not allowed to work during that time. Uh, but basically, the, the government will take care of you, but with, with the proviso that there are just not enough places in these centers. I mean, total, by my calculation, I was getting a lot of numbers from the, the housing ministry, which was present at the press conference. There are uh, totally in France, they can basically lodge about 50,000 people. Uh, but when you think that Germany took, wasn't it something like 800,000, close to a million uh, refugees last year, uh, 50,000 is, is not really a huge number. And then you have the problem of Calais, of course, which is close to 10,000 now. And it looks like they're, they're going to try to start closing down Calais in the autumn. And the government is sort of hoping that the, uh, the new centers in Paris will prevent all the Calais migrants just coming to Paris and sleeping rough in Paris. But the numbers don't add up. There's not enough places for all of them. Okay. And in relation to the, the centres in Paris, I don't know what the French is for not in my backyard, but um, <laughs> <laughs> does this phenomenon exist in Paris? And I mean, are, are there specific locations identified? Are, are, are local residents uh, likely to object? Well, the advantage of the site in uh, northeastern Paris is that it's, it's a pretty industrial zone. I mean, the, the place where the warehouse is, where they're going to put these men, is, be, is between the motorway and the railway tracks. So there are not a lot of um, cushy apartment buildings around there. Uh, there is a problem, though. For example, in the Bois de Boulogne, Anne Hidalgo is building at the moment a center for between one and 200 homeless people. Now, these are not migrants. These are homeless French people. Uh, but there was a huge outcry from the residents of the 16th arrondissement, which is one of the most expensive districts of the city, and it's, it's filled with rich people. And they certainly did not want these homeless men in their backyard, literally their backyard, which is the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, so that happens. And then overnight, last night, uh, there was a fire, which has been called a criminal fire, uh, in the Essonne department just south of Paris at, in a town called Forges-les-Bains, where the mayor was building a center for 80 asylum seekers and there was a there was a meeting in the mayor's office and then when the meeting was over there was a protest in the street and overnight uh, the roof was burned off the center and um, the the officials who were at this briefing just now were all quite upset about it and they said it will go ahead it will be rebuilt it will open uh, but yes there is they are up against that as well Okay. And there was also, as you referred to a moment ago, Lara, a major protest in Calais yesterday, which you wrote about in today's Irish Times, um, by people seeking to have the, the, the Calais migrant camp known as the jungle uh, closed. Who was protesting there and, and, and why were they protesting? Uh, there were, as you said, Chris, about a thousand people, uh, lorry drivers. Uh, who have a big problem there, they um, have to take the road to the Channel Tunnel at night, those who go to England. Uh, they, For example, the migrants will fell a tree across the highway or set up barricades so that the lorry drivers have to stop and they can climb onto the lorries. Um, there have been a lot of accidents that way. Some of them have been attacked. Uh, there were also farmers 
because the migrants uh, go hide in their fields, uh, trample their crops, that sort of thing. There were just local residents, um, one man who lives a, a few hundred meters away from the, the camp called the Jungle, said you know, he bought his house 35 years ago, and it isn't worth a penny today. He could not resell it for anything, and he's, he's sort of barricaded himself in his house. He's, he's uh, cemented up a couple of windows because he's afraid of people coming into his house. Uh, people do have a very heightened sense of insecurity. Uh, shopkeepers in Calais, because their business is way, way down, they don't want these migrants who have very little money and sometimes are not terribly clean because they don't have enough water to wash in. Uh, they don't want them coming in their shops, and they've lost the tourist trade. Um, a lot of British people used to stop in Calais on, when they were on their way to Paris or elsewhere in, in, in France, and nobody wants to stop in Calais anymore because everyone knows that it's, it's this huge uh, center for, for um, unwanted migrants. So the, the Calaisians are, are very unhappy. They actually blocked uh, the A16 motorway for quite something like uh, six or eight hours yesterday. They initially said they would not uh, stop their blockade until the government gave them a precise deadline for demolishing the camp. And then eventually they said, well, we've, we've received assurances that it will happen very, very soon. And so they they agreed to go. But the feedings are running very, very high. The resentment and the anger is certainly there. And nobody knows what's going to happen to the nine or 10,000 people who are now living in the jungle. Right. And and finally, Lara, all of this is playing out at a, 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 a pivotal time politically for France, facing into a presidential election next year. How big an issue is immigration likely to be in that election campaign? The polls show that the things people care most about is the economy. The economy is bad. Growth is almost nil. Um, unemployment is still over 10 percent. And that's what people feel most. Although when the attacks happened in Nice, there were 85 people massacred on Bastille Day in Nice and, and uh, several other jihadist attacks over the summer, uh, at those times, especially right after an attack, security rises to the sort of number one slot in people's concerns. Uh, but immigration is right up there, and immigration is linked in people's minds with uh, the jihadist attacks, because, as, as you know, several of the uh, suicide um, bombers and, and attackers, the Nice fellow was born in France, but several of the Bataclan um, November 13 killers had come in with a refugee flow. There were some of them, there was an Iraqi, there was a Syrian, and there were several French and Belgians who had been fighting in Syria with Islamic State and then took advantage of the flow of refugees from Syria uh, to kind of sneak back in, as it were, because they were on watch list. So people fear uh, the settlements of, of Muslim, especially Muslim refugees, and most of them are Muslims, because they connect them with these attacks. Okay. Well, no doubt Lara will be returning to this topic again, especially as that election campaign um, gets underway. Thank you for that. Lara Marlowe in Paris. That's it from this week's edition of Worldview. From producer Declan Condon, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening. Goodbye. 